Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I'm pleased to have interviewed Josh Block. Josh is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's a foreign policy scholar and political strategist, and he's been involved in national politics and policy for nearly 25 years. We touch on some of the hot spots in the world. We talk about how the world is upside down, the Iranian regime, protests in Iran, Ukraine, much more. Take a listen. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Delighted today to welcome Josh Block to the show. Josh, you have been in the policy space, the political space, for about 25 years. In fact, I'd say, you know, I'm in that space since 2017. But before that, I paid attention. I read the papers. I was informed, but didn't pay such close attention. You have. Do you think, as I do, that the world is upside down today in a way Hmm. that we haven't seen in decades? No question about it. Uh, Not only has has the leadership of the United States flagged substantially, uh, you know, uh, except for the a time when the when the Bush when the when the Bush administration was in and, and took such a strong stand on the war, war against terrorism, and the Trump administration, uh, you know, proved to have a great foreign policy despite all the complaints and and you know uh, assessments of the president himself. There you know there were no matter what you think he was right about China, he was right about NATO, and he was right about Iran. Uh, since the Obama administration has had its hand on the tiller and and the Biden administration took over. Uh, we've seen a dramatic drop-off in, in the kind of decisive leadership that would deal with the upside-down world that we that we live in. So not only do we see, you know, uh, borders being violated over and over again by Russia in, you know, in three successive incursions across uh, international boundaries without much resistance, we see China speaking up about its right to violate the, the, North, the, you know, the South China Sea as much as it wants, to take over uh, you know, in Taiwan as much as it wants. And there are countless other conflicts that we see out there. The problem, I think, the, the, the common thread there is that we are allowing, the United States is allowing these conflicts to reinforce each other, which is to say when China watches Russia get away with the things that it's doing, when, when Russia watches China, uh, you know, alter the, the rules of engagement in the South China Sea, these things feed on each other. And those are just the great, the great power conflicts that are out there. And so, you know, what is the dollar worth? The dollar is worth exactly what the American military is willing to say it's worth. If we don't defend free trade, if we don't defend open and, and fair, you know, open seas and, and the, the sea lanes, uh, we're going to see those vacuums filled by bad actors. Uh, and we haven't even touched on the ramifications of, of COVID and the way the supply chain is being dominated by our adversaries or enemies, whatever you want to call it these days. So in so many ways, uh, you see bad actors gaining 
access to greater technology, greater control over mission critical elements of the things that we need as a country to, to continue to be uh, the world's leading superpower economically, militarily, diplomatically, and in terms of defending trade. So no question about it, you know, when North Korea is able to launch uh, endless missiles across uh, the Sea of Japan and threaten our allies over there with no consequences, when Iran's on the verge of nuclear weapons, when no one's opposing the Houthi terrorists in Yemen, um, when America's going to Venezuela and Iran to pump more oil instead of turning to our allies, um, you know, obviously there's something really wrong. Well, thanks for putting me in a better mood. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned one thing in your talk about NATO, and uh, some people don't like the way President Trump spoke, tweeted, etc. But one of the things he said in his campaign for president originally was, that he wanted the NATO allies to pay what they were supposed to pay. And it shocked me. You know, I, I understood NATO a little bit. I knew of its importance, but I was really shocked that some of our NATO partners didn't pay into NATO what they were supposed to pay. Is that true? And why would he be the first president to, one, point it out, and two, try to enforce their obligations? You know, it's, it's not, from my perspective, and I, I want to answer the question, but it's not just about what they're paying into NATO. It's about what they're spending on their own militaries. And I, what I found remarkable was the resistance that there was to, the, to uh, President Trump's pointing out so clearly that they were way under the 2 or 3% threshold of their GDP, and so many of them were. Uh, and, and, but not only that, but they weren't even spending enough money to have working tanks. You know, in Germany, when the war in Ukraine came around, it was time to inventory what everybody had. You know, the, the quantity of working helicopters and tanks that the German military possessed at the time was, was in the single digits. So not only were they not doing their, doing their duty, if you will, to, as the biggest economy here, to pay into NATO, which is there to defend uh, the, common, you know, the, the, the common good, but they weren't even, you know, uh, spending the, the money that they needed for their own troops to have working equipment. And so what, what I found remarkable was how right he was about it. Um, and not, not just, the, just that, but the contrast between the resistance and the complaining that we heard from various parties about it then versus the dramatic shift that the Europeans took after the Russia invasion of Ukraine, which, by the way, they all said, oh, no, no, that could never happen. That'll never happen, as we were warning of it over and over and over again, where they now want, want to triple their own defense spending and they want to reinforce NATO and grow its role. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, we need, we need NATO. We need a common defense mechanism. But the fact that they were so resistant to these things when President Trump brought them up, not because they, they thought he was wrong, but because they just had a knee-jerk reaction to a, to a Republican government led by President Trump. Uh, I, I look at this from a nonpartisan foreign policy lens. And when you see uh, politics invading foreign policy and invading the space in which we need to make the right decisions to, to spend the, the funds that we need to spend to be able to fight evil, I mean, there's no really, there's no real other way to describe the, the, uh, the totalitarian, uh, you know, attitudes that we're faced with, whether it's from Russia or China or the China Russia, Iran, North Korea, looming axis that's out there. I mean, the, 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 when you see Russia and China talking about being closer than ever and acting on it, and you see Iran supplying not just drone technology, you know, <laughs> drone technology to, to, uh, to Ukraine, uh, but the North Koreans preparing to supply long-range missiles to Russia to, to fight in Ukraine, and Iran sending, not, again, not just uh, the drones and not just other equipment, but actual 
military personnel who are deployed in these areas, not just to advise on the use of drones, but actually to, to, to be in place. We ought to see very clearly that these, that these actors are building their own alliance, a military alliance against us. And as you know, it's not just in the military space. They, you know, they want to create an alternate currency to the dollar. They want an alternate, you know, dollar. You know, SWIFT is the vehicle by which we, you know, the West and most of the world clears its financial transactions. These actors are trying to pursue an alternate economic system. Um, and these things are very dangerous, not just because of money laundering and the, and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the use of these systems for nefarious things, but because they're trying to supplant the West and the Western economic system that emerged after World War II to, to rearrange the way the world works. And this goes to the upside down question you asked before. By, by allowing these actors uh, to, to, to build up their tools without reinforcing our own, whether it's NATO or others, uh, we, we're making a huge mistake. And so I'm glad to see that President Trump was, the, was out there. Why he was the first, I do not know. It was so obvious for so long. I think part of the problem was that the Democrats who were in power had their eyes on other issues. You know, before uh, Al-Qaeda and 9-11, uh, China had been the primary focus of American foreign policy. And frankly, we took our eyes off the ball while we were fighting the war on terror. And we see today that, you know, we celebrate the fact that when we see the United States launch four Artemis rockets a year, and these are very big rockets that go up into space, the Chinese are launching their equivalent once a day. And so we, we need to keep in mind just how far behind we are in some of these key contests. And so whether it's, whether it's working more closely with NATO allies to, to fight these great power technology competitions that will define freedom of speech, the, you know, uh, durable air power, all kinds of major issues going forward in the next 50 to 70 years, whether it's working more closely with our NATO allies or expanding that circle to include allies like Israel and the UAE and others who are working on their own technological pro projects that fit together with us to accelerate our ability to get there. We need to take some dramatic steps. And so the fact that President Trump was willing to do what was so unpopular and call out the deficiencies was not just ahead of its time behind the curve, if you will, but ahead of its time, given the changes that these that the, that the European countries have made since the war in Ukraine. But it was the, the kind of uh, breaking the mold leadership we need to undertake as a country if we're going to beat these totalitarian command economies in the race for these great power technologies. So let's talk about one of those hotspots, which is Iran. Um, some people call them protests. Some people call them peaceful protests, which I think is the wrong terminology. Some people say it's a revolution. Uh, it wasn't covered by the news media much until very recently. What's your take on what's happening there and where it's going to go? Well, the most interesting thing to me is the clarity with which we see the Iranian people speaking about their desire for an end to the clerical military dictatorship that runs their country. Uh, and that, to me, is the most striking element um, of, of what's happening there. Now, I hope that these protests are cutting to the core of the Islamic Republic, that, that they will destabilize the Mullah, the Mullah regime. And I hope that, you know, European allies of the United States, the United States itself, will take a more forward and forceful position in support of their desire for freedom. You know, it, you know the idea that somehow holding our tongues and, and not helping them in their quest to rid themselves of this oppressive government uh, is the right thing to do for fear that they'll be delegitimized by the government or you know, delegitimize them is so crackpot. I mean, you know, this the, the Iranian regime is calling these folks who are who are being shot dead in the streets 
uh, bravely demanding their own freedom, terrorists. Now, if, if, if there's cognitive dissonance out there, this is the definition. And so the idea that, that somehow they'll be delegitimized more, someone will you know, uh, it'll cast dispersion on their motives if we stand up and support what they want, which is, again, an end to this, you know, clerical, military, theocratic dictatorship. Um, it is, you know, it, it's it, it, to be silent in the faces and not offer more support is is terrible. And again, when you see a person like Rob Malley, who spent his career, um, you know, I would say putting his foot in his mouth, but he's saying what he means when he supports Hamas, when he talks about you know, the, the equities of Hezbollah and the need to respect the Iranian regime and hope, you know, and help the Iranian people get their, you know, demonstrated freedom. I mean, please, the inability to speak clearly undermines America's moral authority. And I, I, if these protests were taking place in the Cold War, when, you know, when the people were storming the Berlin Wall, and instead of saying we support their effort to tear down the wall as President Reagan did many, many years before that, to, to tear down the wall and to and to end communism, what would what would we think of ourselves? And it's the same thing happening today. And so when I see them clamoring, not just for the right to vote, but for the right to vote in a, in a secular democracy that respects women's rights, that respects minorities, that, that, you know, that gives them the freedom to live their lives as they choose, I feel an obligation as a human being and an American to say, this, this is the, these are people whose movement needs to be supported, not just with rhetoric, but as much as we can do. And again, I haven't seen a single European power withdraw their ambassador from Iran in the last 45 or 50 days. And I wonder why that is. And don't you find it remarkable that they don't, given that Iran is selling drones to Russia, Russia is using those drones in Ukraine right on European soil. Are they naive? Do they just pretend it's not happening what is it about certain European countries that are afraid to face reality? I think they're chickens. I think they're chicken. Yeah, sorry for the support part of my French. I mean, you know, Iran isn't just selling these drones to fight this war on your on Europe's doorstep. You know, with 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 Vladimir Putin is threatening to attack European NATO states if we assist Ukraine. Iran has been found and convicted of orchestrating terrorist attacks and assassinations on the European continent in the last year. You know, they, they, they carried, Hezbollah carried out these, those terrible bombings in Bulgaria a few years ago. They're actively pursuing, uh, uh, you know, a, a strategy of terror and intimidation. And I think when European states don't speak out more forcefully against the things that Iran is doing, they're encouraging that kind of terrorist-style extortion on the European continent, because I think what they're quietly doing is they're, they're afraid that Iran will actually act to foment acts of terrorism on the continent and disrupt, uh, you know, their, their, their peaceful lives at home. And so they're pulling their punches against this regime. And I think it's disgraceful. And let's talk about the JCPOA redo. It seems for the moment we have a brief period of time where we're not pursuing that. We don't know if that's going to come back to life. Maybe Rob Malley is taking a little break. Why is it that the Biden administration, the Obama administration before, the Europeans in particular, who we were negotiating through instead of negotiating ourselves, believe that Iran is ready, the Iranian regime, the Mullah regime, as you call them, is ready to join the community of nations, as opposed to understanding that what they want is to destroy Israel, to take over all the countries in the Middle East, to attack America, really to attack Europe too, although that's probably secondary to America. Am I mistaken in that? And why can't 
those countries, including our own, at least under the Biden administration, understand that? Uh, you know, again, these are these are great mysteries, honestly, Jason. I mean, uh, you know, I agree with you. It, the The fact that we would allow Russia to negotiate with Iran this JCPOA two, which, by the way, they did, and the Russian, uh, you know, the participant in those talks went out and publicly talked about how the deal actually turned out much better for the Iranians than the Iranians even expected. This is out of the mouth of the Russian negotiator who was negotiating the deal. Why we would allow that to happen even before the war in Ukraine? is a mystery to me. And the fact that anyone would even could even conceive of having an agreement with the Iranians, and we can talk about Iran in a second, but just a mech which requires a mechanism to judge Iranian violation, which relies on Russian and Chinese participation, is truly crazy. Particularly given the fact, now that the war has gone on, that Russia isn't just an adversary of the United States, it's an enemy of the United States, as described by Vladimir Putin, who, has a, who, who, by the way, has a direct interest in Iran going nuclear, who sees the opportunity to earn a great deal of money from assisting Iran in building the 40 nuclear power plants that Iran has said it plans to build, and who, who benefits from the strategic uh, uh, threat to the United States and the West that, Iran, that an Iranian nuclear program poses. So how we could actually ever enter into any agreement which requires the Russians and the Chinese to judge Iranian bad behavior as bad is truly illogical, truly illogical. And so, uh, you know, uh, I would hope that when we emerge from this period, now that the administration says, gee, attaining this agreement with Iran is not, a, not our top priority, that we will act with some clarity of consciousness in this regard. Now, Iran itself, uh, I think the administration, like the Obama administration, they are so wedded to these to the quote unquote success of attaining any agreement with the with the Mullah regime that they that John Kerry, who's the who's the Biden whisperer, uh, is is there in, in and telling him it's so important that we contain Iran in this way and that they they really do want to change and they're caught in a rock in a hard place and you know. It is. It was the. It was the uh, Obama aides, some of whom still work in this administration, who wrote that that report after the war in Iraq, which suggested that the United States has more in common with Iran and Syria than we do with our decades-long allies in the Arab world, who are making peace with Israel, who are increasing trade within the region, who are opposing the Iran nuclear program, who are fighting terror with terrorism with us over the last two decades. That kind of perspective is so broken and so bad that it, it infuses and infects all the other decisions that they make. When a person like Colin Call is now, who was Biden's national security advisor in the past and worked for the Obama administration, is now in, in, is in charge of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And we saw what that, what that looked like. Uh, and, they're, and they're the ones uh, working so hard to, uh, to maintain an Iran nuclear agreement because they somehow think it'll keep keep calm in the region. They want to continue President Obama's notion of balancing Sunnis and Shias. I mean, th this idea is so ridiculous on its face that it is the cause of the of the uh, instability in the region. When President Obama was in office and Syria began to te you know, to teeter over the edge, and Hezbollah was deployed across the country. And uh, Al Qaeda was all over the country, uh, and the Syrian regime had eight runways total 
that it was using to gas and bomb its own people. It was the cowardice of these same advisors to President uh, Biden, who were then advisors to President Obama, who, along with the president, decided to call off the bombing of all those folks, every black flag in the country, Hezbollah, Hezbollah unit, every Iranian revolutionary guard unit, all the, you know, that would have ended the, the, the bombings of, of, or at least temporarily hampered, substantially hampered the effort by the Syrian regime to, to, to murder its own people. And so how we could listen to that when they further want to support uh, the Iranians at this point is nonsense. Just when you say the word Assad, you're actually saying the word supreme leader. It may not sound the same, but it is absolutely the same. Because without the supreme leader of Iran, there would be no Assad today. And so the idea that these, these, these things can be separated is nonsense. And the, and the, the fecklessness of the Europeans, uh, ex- by the way, except the French, it was the French military, French Air Force that was on the runway with the jets, with their jets engines running, waiting to go bomb these bad actors in Syria when President Obama called off that raid. And so, you know, these, these, some of these Europeans have been very weak, uh, but, you know, we, there is the capacity to bring uh, logic to bear. And the idea that we're going to go into a world in which Russia and, and China are stronger allies than ever, acting together on the global stage economically and, and to a certain degree militarily, uh, where North Korea is more, more belligerent uh, than it's been in many, many years, uh, and Iran is on the verge of nuclear weapons. So you'll have a North Korea, China, Iran, and Russia nuclear umbrella axis spanning the globe is bananas. And if, if the United States wants to remind uh, Vladimir Putin and remind the Chinese government that their uh, reckless actions, whether it would be considering expanding the war in Europe with a tactical nuke or invading Taiwan, would meet with terrible consequences for them. The best thing the United States can do right now is to bomb and destroy the Iranian nuclear complex and its mil- and, and military industrial complex, period, because it will eliminate from that axis one of the most dangerous elements. And it will remind these other folks that the United States, you know, when you make us angry, we have the capacity to wreak enormous damage and consequences on you. And by the way, we would be we should expect the, the, the total support of our Western allies in doing that. It seems, though, that we've lost our way, right? Um, I have no indication that any of what you're suggesting is remotely in, in the cards. Has America lost its, its leadership in the world? I think, you know, at the moment, watching President Biden's kind of rather weak response to just, just one example, the, the, the escalating threats from Vladimir Putin is, is dismay. I mean, there's no question about it. Go back to the, the sort of earlier on in the Ukraine conflict, when on Sunday it was a great idea for the Poles to give their planes to Ukraine and we would supply the Poles with new planes. Well, on Monday, after Vladimir Putin threatened to bomb a Western NATO country if we supplied uh, Ukraine with those, with those weapons, it was suddenly for President Obama a terrible idea. Well, who's deterring who? And that trend has continued. When you see uh, Vladimir Putin talking about nuclear escalation, uh, instead of demonstrating American resolve, sending carriers, you know, making clear there would be dramatic military consequences, what, what do we hear from the White House? We hear, we see the president go on 60 Minutes and say, don't, 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 like pretty please with sugar on it. And we leave it to the, to the, to the uh, Scandinavian former head of, of NATO, Jan Stolberg, to make the most pointed remarks about these things. It, it lacks credibility. 
And so when we don't act with decisiveness, uh, it's a problem. And by the way, going back to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, it was such an enormous mistake in the way we did it um, that it, it almost requires, Jason, it almost requires our military adversaries to test us um, uh, kinetically. Because if they don't, by just by pure game theory, they need to find out whether this administration will fold in the face of their of their military, uh, w- their willingness to engage militarily. And we haven't been doing much, honestly, to dissuade folks of that of that premise. So, you know, uh, moreover, I would just add just one thing: when 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 the administration at the beginning of this uh, conflict that, that Russia was having with Ukraine wanted to see more oil in the world, instead of repairing our relationship with Saudi Arabia and bringing them closer into our orbit again and pulling them a little bit away from the Soviets, you know, instead of, you know, going, you know, building on our traditional relationships and producing American domestic production and creating incentives, where did the president first turn? He turned to Venezuela and Iran. There's just not much more you need to say in terms of weakness. It's, it's, it's truly uh, it's such a disappointment. And I think, you know, there are some of these people in the, in the, in the national security establishment, of, you know, in this administration who I have known for many, many years and, and have a lot of personal regard for. But it seems to me that, you know, they're not making very good decisions. And so what we need to do is, is again, be more clear, more direct and more forceful. If we want to lead the world to prosperity, we need to do it with a strong hand not by allowing the Russians and the Chinese to chart the course to our decline. It's, you know, decline is not inevitable. It is a choice. And by our actions, we're pursuing it. Look, my take from many conversations in the Middle East with leadership, diplomats, ordinary people is uh, we've lost our way. They can't rely on us. They're afraid. Um, they're seeking out alternative arrangements because they, they really think deeply that they can't rely on us. So it's pretty scary for them. Do you have a different take on that? Not at all. I, I, I thousand percent agree. It's why, why when I say that when the president turned to Venezuela and Iran, he ended up pushing the Saudi government closer to, to, the, to Russia. You know, it, when we ought to be doing exactly the opposite. President Bush showed, uh, president, and President Trump showed, how, how much that relationship is important to the United States. And, and by creating a, a, a binding tie, not only were we increasing uh, the global fight against terror, which continues, but we were but we were we were strengthening the economic bonds, not just between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but between the Arab states and Israel, between the region itself and 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 Europe and the West. Uh, and frankly, with all due respect to the other members of the Five Eyes, you know, it is not Australia or New Zealand or the United Kingdom that's going to help the United States win the great power technology race against China. And in the same regard, as we as we've kind of dismissed the need to deepen these relationships in order to maintain our leadership position in the Middle East, if we don't dig deeper and invest in uh, expanding our relationships and creating better, you know, trilateral, multilateral cooperation in in some of these key areas, they're going to have they'll they'll fall further and further into the trap of working with China around artificial intelligence or some of these other technologies. And again, just like uh, you're just just like the point you were making. We what we need to do is demonstrate leadership so that they can trust that we'll be there for them and that we'll build the structures that will lead us all to prosperity and security, rather than making them feel abandoned and afraid and worried that we're we've lost our our metal. So, last question, because I want to talk about America's role in the world. You served in the Clinton administration as a spokesman for 
the U.S. Agency for International Development, also called USAID. Tell us if you think USAID still has a role to play. Um, is it a force for U.S. diplomacy? And if you were sitting in front of them today, what would you tell them to focus on? Well, first of all, you know, USAID is simply a tool. And so, you know, um, it, it's, its efficacy and its utility is, is entirely dependent on what, on what case the administration of power makes for using that tool to build our relationships around the world. And uh, let me just give an, an opposite example. You know, there's a China, while it's having its own economic and domestic difficulties with COVID and some of these other things, was very clear that it was going to use international development to build up its spheres of influence around the world. And it did that extremely effectively all across Africa, all across Latin America. Uh, you know, I, would, I used to do some work in, in some, some, of the, some uh, African countries that are allied with the United States. They may be American allies, but every telephone pole in the country had Huawei boxed switch boxes on it. The, the, their foreign ministry was built by the Chinese government, their central bank built by the Chinese, their soccer stadium built by China. Uh, now, they did this in a very self-serving way. They would import their worker, their own workers, and they would build these places and they would, you know, and every time a door handle broke, you still had to order it from Beijing. But the, but, the, but, the, but the premise there that, you know, by helping countries develop their economies, develop their infrastructure, uh, develop their body politic, um, you know, you can, you can expand your influence. Now, if the United States and Europe want to seed the ground uh, to, to China and others in the world, we can do that. No question about it. But, it's, but, but foreign aid is a tremendous investment. And it, the return on those dollars is extraordinarily powerful. So I, I, I think, you know, that, it, that USAID remains a very important tool in the American foreign policy toolbox. How that, how that is used, again, depends on each administration. I don't see the Biden administration doing uh, that much good at the moment. You know, again, just one example. They're, they're investing half a billion dollars in the Palestinian government. At the moment, a government that continues to, to, to pay money to, to terrorists, the families of, of terrorists against American law. They're undermining Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem by trying to, you know, sort of stealthily reopen, uh, you know, in, in more and more Palestinian infrastructure in that city without, uh, without regard to, it, to those consequences. And so USAID, can, as much as it can be a tool for good, can also be a funnel for, for unfortunate uh, uh, undertakings. And so again, it depends on what the administration in power is doing with it. Now, if I were, if I were talking to the folks at USAID, I would tell them that they should focus at the moment on supporting, uh, some of the democracy movements around the, around the world, particularly, you know, in, in places that where the totalitarian governments are opposing them. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, in addition to that, I would say that we ought to be working to cement greater, uh, greater ability, the great, a greater infrastructure uh, of of oil, of gas, of natural resources to be exported for some of the countries uh, that 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 have important supplies, and that includes not just oil and gas, but also some of these rare minerals and others out there in the world um, that that are in countries where, again, China and others went and, and made these tremendous investments to try to build up their relationships. We can't seed uh, this. Round to to the forces of totalitarianism and expect uh, that nothing that there will be no bad consequences. We need to be there and establish 
uh, greater relationships and help those people understand that the ways of freedom and capitalism and being uh, part of our our global network and is important. And and Jason, to your point about the Billies, that will be there and that they can rely on us. Yeah, and to your Period. point, that oil, that gas, those minerals are soon going to be under China's control if we don't act fast. Um, and your description of the unfortunate undertakings that sometimes USAID does, I would say, is uh, my label for that is a total waste of U.S. taxpayer money. Your money, my money, and all of our friends, colleagues, and fellow citizens. So, uh, Josh Bach, thank you. Thank you so much for joining The Diplomat on Newsweek. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, folks, Josh, as you can, I'm sure, tell, is an expert. He really knows his stuff about many of the areas in the world. Certainly, it wasn't a pleasant conversation because the world is in trouble. Lots and lots of difficult, challenging hotspots. I thought his insight was really important. I thought he had some great suggestions. I hope you found it interesting and informative. By the way, my book is now on sale in the United Arab Emirates on Noon.com. It's also available in Saudi Arabia through Noon.com, as well as Virgin Megastores. More and more people are picking it up. If you want to learn more about the Middle East, of course, you could always go to Amazon. That's my go-to place. Do pick it up. It's called In the Path of Abraham. Thank you for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.